0: House of Mystery presents Inside
1: Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. Excellent book. We have it on our website now, guys, so you can go to it one click, pick it up. It's called A Spy Named Orphan, and it's the enigma of Donald McLean. Um, really, really good book, and it, it's very interesting for this time period as well with all the uh, spy talking and, and Russia and all that stuff so now Roland Phillips is joining us thank you for coming on the show
0: thank you for having
1: me ah, it's welcome open. it's a pleasure um, great book um, and uh, now I, first of all before we get into some details um, you yourself how did you get into writing this book
0: I got into it um I came into it two ways, in fact. Um, first of all, my, um, it's a tale of my grandfather's, in, in effect, as well. One of my grandfather's was a communist throughout his life, as was my subject, Donald McCain, and even after the end of communism, uh, still said it was the right course in spite of what was known about its um, practice under Stalin in particular. My other grandfather was a in the Foreign Office of uh, the British State Department, as was McLean. He was, in fact, McLean's boss. He um, gave him his final job, and he was the last diplomat to see him before Donald McLean defected in 1951, and was indeed uh, widely blamed uh, for allowing him to defect. Uh, But in fact, uh, that grandfather, his name was Roger Makins, Uh, Although he knew, he had been told that Donald McLean was the spy they had been looking for for some years, Uh, he'd been told that McLean was being watched by the security services, which indeed he was. Anyone could see the watchers following him. But he was never told that the watchers didn't work in the evenings and at weekends. So um, when he gave Donald McLean the day off, he assumed that he'd be watched throughout that time, but in fact Donald McLean was allowed to flee the country. So I come at it through the family roots, and also because I was uh, tipped off that a huge amount of previously classified material was about to be was about to emerge um, in the archives, and that that told a wonderful story, both of establishment bungling and. The whole story back through McLean's life of his um, of his growth into communism and his later spying. So I had a wealth of material as well as a personal connection.
1: So now he was he was um, born in uh, Britain, and um, how did he how did he get into having such extreme views on the left side, like being a commie or Marxist?
0: Well, he, 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 his father was a, a, a great liberal. He was a liberal politician and a cabinet minister at the end of his life. He was also a devout churchman, Presbyterian, um, believed, instilled in all his children that one should follow one's conscience, whatever, whatever the conscience was telling you. He didn't mean it to mean communism. Um, I think he meant something more spiritual. Um, so that was a part of it. And then um, McCain went to a school that reinforced this message that you have to um, think freely and and work for your fellow man. and the the final key was the time in which he grew up. It was the he was at University of Cambridge in the um, uh, in the depression. He saw the workers, the poverty-stricken workers, they were called the hunger marchers. Marching on London to make their case they had no work and no food. He saw the rise of fascism in in Europe, Hitler and Mussolini and the terrible things that came about there. They were very much aware of the damage the First World War had had wrought on the generation above them. And he decided that communism was the only way to world peace, and that was what he... Held dear to until the end of his life in
1: 1983. Wow! Now, uh, so mm-hmm. when we get his life, when he's in uh, the university, um, did he have any relationships? Did, was he was he seeing uh, a lady at the time, or was this all before?
0: This was all before. Uh, so, at university, he, he that's when he burst into communism really after his father died in his first year at university, and he made friends there with, amongst others, Kim Philby, um, who was also a a later spy, and um, went on marches and uh, was a staunch member of the University Socialist Society, and that's where he got really indoctrinated, sitting up late at night in smoke-filled rooms in Cambridge, talking about all this. And his plan was that he should, after he left Cambridge in 1934, he was planning to go to live in Russia to uh, teach English to, to the workers so that when world communism um, came about, um, he would be in, the workers would, would speak English. Um, but a chance, Philby asked him to dinner just after he left. Philby was a year older than him had already been recruited into communism, into the um, uh, to being a spy um, by a brilliant recruiter I'll, I'll talk about in a moment. And uh, the first thing this recruiter said to Philby was, which of your um, fellow uh, graduates would be a, a good spy? And top of his list was McCain. So he had Maclean suffer in London and uh, said, that, you know, it's all very well, this plan of Maclean's to go and live in the Soviet Union but he could do far more good um, if he work, was to work underground if you, if you know what I mean she said and McLean leapt at this and said you, you mean work for the party and Philby said yes and if you were to go into the foreign office um, and work your way up rather than to um, uh, simply go and live the communist dream but actually to, to take it underground so he was recruited as soon as he left and
1: left to the chance well wasn 't he worried wow. ab- wasn 't he worried about like okay so you 're living in England and it 's not a communist country, so to to mm. be part of that 's one thing, but to actually um, want to pursue a career with it um, wasn 't that hard for his family like to be around his parents and and anybody else
0: well he w- he was always able <laughs> Until the Cold War got um, uh, got going after the Second World War, he was always able to separate the two parts for himself completely. And of course, um, Russia was not the enemy um, that that she later became, um, but indeed an ally. And um, and Maclean seem, seemed able to to live the two lives. He was a remarkable diplomat. He was very quickly promoted out of the, the diplomatic ladder at the same time as he was the single most prolific and important spy the Russians had in, in the country. so he seemed completely able to live the two lives. He later said how much he loathed spying. he said it was like being a laboratory attendant it's a terrible business that someone has to do it. but at the time he went about it with absolute meticulousness. And, um, and it was a, a, a really extraordinary um, ability he had to, to live the two lives. His family had no idea, um, and, um, and he, uh, until he met his wife, which we'll, we'll come on to in a minute or two, um, but he was able to, to do both things at once.
2: Now, you are making this sound so easy. <laughs> when you say recruited? You know what were the methods that they recruited him? You know who approached him and, and how? You don't just walk up to somebody and say, "Hey, I think you're the perfect candidate. You want to be a spy?"
0: Absolutely. The the, the recruiter was a brilliant man uh, called Oscar Deutsch, who was uh, um, a, a a Viennese Jew. Uh, who'd studied chemistry he was brilliant he'd got his uh, PhD at the age of only 24 and he, he'd, he'd been a chemist in fact but uh, has a sideline psychology and after he left the University of Vienna he worked with a uh, pupil of Freud's in the psychological department um, and when he came to London he, he was already signed up to the forerunner of the KGB um, the, the NKVD and he came to London and he was the first recruiter to realise that if you could find the young ideologues out of the good universities who were going to go into the professions that ran Britain um, you could recruit them young any communist sympathies that they had at university could be put down to youthful idealism and then they would work their way up he also um, had uh, three criteria for the perfect spy that he'd worked out which were a predilection for secrecy which is obviously a vital one uh, a class resentfulness which um, helps of course if you're going to be a communist spy and the one he spotted that interests me most is a he, what he called an infantile need for praise and reassurance and each of the five Cambridge spies all had either issues with their fathers or dead fathers, as in McLean's case. And that need for prison reassurance, which he got from the, um, from the uh, Communist Party, from the KGB, uh, sustained McLean throughout his life. And in his later spying career, when, when the reassurance was withdrawn through a chapter of accidents more than anything, that's when he began to crack up, and, um, and he exposed himself. And uh, so, Oscar Deutsch, um, Arnold Deutsch, sorry, his cousin was Oscar, um, who invented the, um, who brought about the Odeon cinema chains, which stands for Oscar Deutsch Entertains Our Nation. Uh, Arnold Deutsch was able to spot the psychological requirements for a spy and through Philby um, as soon as he met McLean, he he thought this man fits the bill perfectly
2: oh well so would, would it be fair to say then that he was psychologically profiled that they had been watching him for a while and he met ABC and D traits that they were looking for absolutely,
0: absolutely right and and he he completely uh, he he that, that's good way of putting it he was psychologically profiled and asked, after he being recruited by Deutsch Deutsch said um, you know work your way you'll be a sleeper you'll work your way up the Foreign Office and you'll come into your own later on but from the moment McCain went in there his the psychological profile was so perfect that he was already producing thousands of documents in his first months in the Foreign Office indeed so many that they had to have his own handler to photograph the documents and and take care of him. He couldn't be with the handler handling other spies in London. So they sent a woman called Kitty Harris, um, who was 14 years older than McLean, came to London Mm -hmm. to look after him. And um, astonishingly, um, they began an affair. So there's their top spy and their top spy's handler, um, sleeping together um, which caused consternation in Moscow Center but there was well, a side in, in, the, in the normal course of events certainly Kitty would have been brought back and probably executed and McLean would have been dropped because who knows what secrets were leaking um, but uh, so important was McLean to them, he was codenamed Orphan as in the title of my book at that point uh, so important was he to them that uh, they not only allowed them to continue their affair and, and to the sending huge amounts of material, but when McCain was posted to Paris in 1938, uh, Kitty went with him. Wow! Um, to uh, to to that vital post,
2: uh, just as the run up to the Second World War began. So, Roland, you said an exciting word in there, and that's the sleeper. You know. Yes. That just reeks of Jason Bourne. So, <laughs> yes, so absolutely. Did, yes. did he? You know, did they provide him an identity? And here's the job you're going to be working. And here's how you're going to live. You know, you know, kind of like some of the TV dramas that we have. You know, the Russian spies who live in America for twenty years and are your average absolutely. citizens. That, that
0: series, so the Americans, I very much enjoyed. Well, he was absolutely he. Because he was living the life anyway, because he was a very um, good and successful diplomat, um, they didn't need to provide any uh, cover or material, backup materials, all the cars they have in those dramas or anything, because he simply in the day went about his work, and in the evenings would take home briefcases full of documents. There was no security in the Foreign Office at all. There wasn't even a security officer until the um, Second World War. And so... He didn't need a cover story because his cover story—he was living perfectly.
1: So, so when it gets to that, what I was going to get into that—how how could they not realize that he was, um, you know, passing on so many documents and and doing so much? Like, is it because they didn't want to believe he was a, a spy, or it, what was the story?
0: It was quite simply an atmosphere of trust that the British establishment worked in. I think it worked in that atmosphere of trust until, in fact, McLean defected. That was the first um, rupturing of that. They um, believed that anyone who'd been to the right school and the right university that he had had the right father, I remember his father had been a, a cabinet minister and was a knight, um, that... Uh, that they, they could not be trustworthy indeed Maclean was asked at his interview for the foreign office they said we note you are very left-wing at university are you still to which he answered i'm working on it quite truthfully and they they said that's fine In you come and they they simply trusted um McLean and his ilk throughout which the once they were looking for the spy in the late 1940s and early 1950s when they had evidence that there had been a spy in the British Embassy in Washington uncovered by a remarkable uh, National Security Agency decoding operation, they quite simply refused to look at anyone senior including King for some three years. Their first reaction on being told there had been a spy was, it won't be a senior man. We must look at anyone junior who had a nervous breakdown. They, they simply believed their people were honest.
1: Well, lesson learned. Um, yeah. <laughs> yes,
0: absolutely. Yeah.
1: Now, did he marry Kitty or what happened there?
0: No, he, he didn't marry Kitty. When he was in um, Paris in 1938, in fact, in late 1939, after the war had started, um, he was uh, still spying there, and Kitty was still his handler and lover. But one day on the left bank in Paris, he, he didn't really like the whole stuffy diplomatic entertaining atmosphere, much preferred to prowl around amongst the bohemians and intellectuals on the left bank. And one day he went into a cafe on the left bank and saw a frail, waif-like um, uh, woman called Melinda Marling and fell instantly in love with her. Um, Melinda was uh, American. Oh. She came from quite a broken home. Had um, There was quite a lot of money there. She, she'd gone to Paris to, um, to uh, be at the Sorbonne University with her sister. And I believe, and the first clue to Melinda's character came when I learned that um, the American embassy in Paris had said to all the American citizens as war had, had come closer and by the time Donald McCain met Melinda, the war had been underway for two months, and the American embassy had told all its citizens to go home. Melinda's sister had gone home, leaving her behind, and, and I get from that that Melinda loved the thrill of danger. She, she was disobeyed that rule so she was in France, which was shortly going to be invaded, And um, when she met Donald, she first of all didn't want to have anything to do with him because he looked like a stuffed British diplomat. So he took the second gigantic risk of his uh, espionage career and told her he was a spy, at which point she fell in love with him because, as I say, I think she, she loved the, the thrill that, um, that that gave her so um, that but Kitty continued to had to move out of his flat, um, but continued to um, handle his espionage until he had to leave France in a hurry after the German invasion in June 1940, and even that is another example of of how Melinda pushed things because she refused to marry him until just before five days before the Nazis arrived in Paris, at which point they hurriedly got married and, and evacuated France. And it's the only black mark on Maclean's file in the Foreign Office is he wasn't on hand to evacuate the embassy because he was off getting married.
1: Oh. Uh, now, did, did she get involved in his uh, um, spying, so to speak, or did she just approve of it and let him do it?
0: She, uh, she didn't get involved until right at the end of his spying career in 1951. So, um, McCain's great espionage time was when he was in the British Embassy in Washington between 1944 and 48, and he gave away from there the shape of post-war Europe, all the negotiations up to the Yalta Conference, he gave away the formation of NATO, he uh, gave away most importantly, the atomic. he was on the Atomic Energy Commission.
2: Oh, wow. Now that was... And,
0: and, yes. Uh, he had an access all areas passed to the Atomic Energy Commission, which even his boss, uh, my grandfather, didn't have. And so he was able to say exactly to the Soviets exactly how many uh, bombs the Americans were capable of building, which was nothing like their public um, pronouncements and I believe gave the, the Soviets the confidence to, to build their bomb two years earlier than, than expected. So these were his great days of, um, of espionage. At the same time, as the Cold War developed, he was getting more and more anti-capitalist. He was drinking very heavily. He was given to outbursts about his wife's countrymen at, at grand Washington dinner parties. With uh, with Catherine Graham and uh, the owner of the Washington Post and others, uh, he would insult the Secretary of State. None of this got onto his his file. They were they all said poor O'Donnells had a bit too much to drink. This behaviour got worse in his next posting in Cairo when when between 1948 and 1950 when he was uh, less praised and reassured by the. Um, KGB and at that point uh, and when I first started reading about him I couldn't understand why Melinda didn't leave him at this point because there uh, are several stories what, there's a terrible picnic on the Nile at which he uh, tries to throttle her and has to be dragged off by um, some of his countrymen that picnic ended with him brawling on the banks of the Nile and breaking a fellow diplomat's leg in three places good no, lord He's, he's a uh, yeah, he's he's completely off the rails by this point. I think the combination of the Cold War getting really ugly, he he's now a divided figure instead of a unified one. And um, in the following year, nineteen fifty, he and a journalist friend of his go on Almighty Bender which ends up with them trashing the American ambassador's secretary's flat in Cairo, I mean, really trashing it, breaking her bath in two by hurling a mirror into it, throwing all her clothes out the window. Again, none of this gets on to, her, to his file, um, because they simply don't want to hear tittle-tattle, as they put it, about so able an officer. In spite of all this, he's able to go to work and, and be brilliant all, all day. Um, and I didn't understand why Melinda didn't leave him uh... through all this but instead supported him uh... until i got he defected in may 1951 and when i saw the secret service files on the defection as i said at the beginning they, they were following him they were tapping his telephone and i found uh, lies from her on the telephone after he defected which make it absolutely plain she knew what he was up to um, and indeed, two years after he defected, she suddenly disappeared, which caused a complete shock and outrage anew. Um, and I, so I believe that she, she did know that he was a spy. She may not know the detail, and she rather enjoyed that and was protecting him and looking out for him. And that's why she stuck to him through this outrageous behavior.
2: Well, did, did she never think that if... If he gets captured or if he gets caught, this is all going to come back to me too. I'm going to go into the gallows with him. Well, or was I it worth she, it to her? I think she, uh, she uh, I
0: think she she felt that this was the way her life was exciting and the way it was going to be and um, and she was going to support him and, and stand by him. I mean the, the biggest irony of all, is that when she does go... So she she defects herself with their three young children uh, in 1953. And when Kim Philby... Things get too hot for Kim Philby a decade later, and he goes to Moscow. And they're quite friendly, the Philbys and the McLeans. Uh, but then Philby, who had to betray everybody he ever knew, um, betrayed his first recruit, Donald McLean, and went off with Melinda... Um, and they lived together for three years in Moscow. So she she didn't leave him and didn't leave him until um, they were safe in Moscow, at which point she went off with his recruiter. I mean, that's a huge
2: irony. <laughs> yes,
1: it is. <laughs> so what was it that exactly made him defect to Russia?
0: Well, the... Um, they, they, there was a uh, decoding opera. Every, every telegram that left uh, the United States from Moscow during the war, a copy had to be lodged with the Western Union offices. So after the war, there were hundreds of thousands of telegrams, all in code, all in a, um, they believed, all in uh, a one-time, they'd been put into a one-time code, which means that each telegram would have had a new code set up and therefore be uncrackable. But this genius called Meredith Gardner um, realized that sometimes they'd used the same pad twice. And through this chink, he began to decode a very, very small proportion of the telegrams. Indeed, when the operation was wound up in 1980, they'd only decoded 15% of the telegrams. But they did keep finding... Um, references to um, a spy called either H or Homer, um, and they, they they discovered that um, from the serial numbers that, that some of this material, and that that's how we know that he was giving away such incredibly high-grade material, had come from the British Embassy in Washington. So they spent sort of three years trying to the British, they passed this on to the British, who spent three years not trying that hard to identify the spy because they believed it would be a junior person. Um, and, uh, and indeed, they, they sent Philby to Washington as head of MI6 station, who obfuscated as well. Um, so it was, it was a decoding operation that kept coming across this material, but they refused to believe the spy was McCain. They did eventually come around and see it was a senior man And they made a list of names, six or seven names. McLean featured on that. But they still, as 1948, 1949, 1950, all this time, McLean was acting out unseen in this alcoholic way. And then, in early 1951, uh, they decoded a tiny fragment that said uh, Homer will be coming to Tyre, which is what they call New York. Uh, weekly to see his pregnant wife, and Melinda had been pregnant when they arrived in June 1944, and so, um, that made them realize it was McLean. Even so, they um, the heads of the Foreign Office in London said it can't be him, it must be someone else, but that was the smoking gun that that caught him. You know, uh, Roland. Um, McLean got to hear about this from Philby, and then Philby organized his defection.
2: Uh, Roland, you know, this is kind of a sidebar here. You know, we're talking about spies, and the, the traditional view of spies is everything is so super secret. You know, nobody knows who they are, and you know they're doing all these fabulous things behind the scene, and you know the espionage and you know the intrigue. But throughout our discussion, I'm sitting here thinking it's almost like everybody knew who everybody else was, and, and there really wasn't anything secret about it. It was just a matter of things catching up to them. And Donald and, and Donald starts blowing his cover early just by acting like a you know uh, a jackass like, absolutely and, and and that's what's extraordinary
0: is that the, uh, the the trust in him was so absolute and indeed his work was so extremely good his legitimate work was so extremely good that even though he's acting like a jackass they think he's 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 uh, our jackass he's brilliant um, we have no reason to think he's a spy but it. it hiding in plain sight is is the best um, disguise for a spy. So, exactly. So, even while he... And even after they knew it was a senior man and he was on the list of possible spies, they still made him head of the American Department in London just at the beginning of the Korean War. I mean, they they simply could not have been more blind
2: um, to the possibilities Mm -hmm. of, of this spy. So my work is so good that you have to ignore all this other behavior that could put so much at risk.
0: Absolutely, and he was tall, he was beautifully dressed, he'd been to the right school, he'd been to the right university, Uh, he'd he'd done the work, Um, he never was drunk in the office or appeared hungover. Absolutely, they they couldn't believe it uh, right up until after he went they still didn't believe it
2: so we have a functional alcoholic who does incredible work and nations are resting on what he does yes
0: the borders of Poland rested on what he did Uh, he he, a part of the material we've seen sent um, was a telegram between Churchill and and Truman, President Truman saying uh, if Molotov is adamant uh, we will move the border to here, and guess what? Molotov was adamant, Wow. the borders of Poland were set by Maclean's treachery.
2: Holy smokes! So, so what? You know, where was the, the decline? Where did he mess up and, and start heading south? Pardon the pun. He started. <coughs> he started heading
0: south, or maybe east, um, when um, when I when the Cold war up until 1945 he communism as i say he believed was the only way to world peace he um, was able to uh, rightly say to himself russia was an ally they should have this material but as the cold war got got worse got colder and uh, i i think particularly of what he saw in the atom bomb production uh, line m- must have made him realize that um, that the, uh, the creation of atom bombs wasn't necessarily the path to peace um, and that's when he began to crack up and, and, and came to loathe Spine he kept at it but he hated it and uh, and I believe that contributed to the alcoholic decline so it was really the as the two halves of him that he kept together so ably uh, during the period began to pull apart that's when he began to drink heavily to sound off at dinner parties and and really to to hate his life and he did indeed in 1948 write to Moscow center saying um, I've had enough of this take me out now take me to Moscow my work is done I want to live in Moscow and they ignored that letter which led to yet more drinking and um, and acting out. So I, I, I believe it was when when the, his two halves, because he was, as I uh, say, he was, in, in some senses, he was a great patriot. He worked very hard for his country. And it's when those two halves became irreconcilable that uh, it all went
2: wrong. Now, th- this question begs to be asked, and, and then I promise I'll shut up for just a moment. And this is incredibly important work that he's doing. Like you said, borders the atomic bomb, everything, is now resting on the shoulders of, you know, a, a drunkard mm-hmm. and, and yeah. who's acting out in, in such a public way. At any yeah. point, did, did his handlers or either side, because it almost sounds like he was a double agent, at either side, did they, or I'm sorry, at any point, did they take him aside and say, listen, you have got to stop the crap you're going to blow this for everybody.
0: I think that's why they decide why uh, Moscow Center decided he had to be got out. Um, in point of fact, uh, if they 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 stopped after he went to Egypt in 1948, they'd stopped. Um, uh, thinking of him as such an important spy. Washington was where they wanted their important spies to be. And indeed that contributed that neglect as he saw it contributed further to his decline. Um, but they were well aware that if he was arrested and, and questioned in any way, he'd be blown, which they could live with. I mean, he was blown when he defected anyway. Uh, he'd be blown. But their real concern was that he would blow the rest of the uh, spy network, including Kim Philby, who at that point was very senior in in the Secret Service and invaluable to them. And that was why they decided they needed to get him out um, before that happened. Um, And that's why when Philby said to Moscow Center, the the Americans uh, uh, have uh, all but identified Homer, they they said we hold you responsible for getting him out now, and that was the um, and it was Philby's tip off that led to the defection. So um, so that that was their real fear that he would blow the rest of them sky high. Which ironically, of course, as soon as he was as soon as he defected and they looked into his background, he did anyway. But they they hoped to keep it secure.
1: Wow, now. Um- hmm. What, what, you were talking about new material. Um, mm. w- w- can you explain that, like w- w- what new materials come out?
0: Yes. So what I saw, what I saw was uh, all the um, files after they knew about Homer in 1947. Um, the, the files where they tried to identify um, who Homer might be, McCain's name kept coming up. But they continually said um, the the high ups and the phone offs said no, it can't be him. So that was part of the new material. The really exciting new material was the um, the tail on him and the telephone taps in his last month in England, um, when uh, where it becomes apparent you can so you can follow his movements during the day. As I say, they didn't work at weekends uh, in the evenings. Um, you can follow his movements during the day. You, there's the point you can see clearly the point when he's told he's going to have to go and he becomes quite agitated and comes out of the place where he's having lunch and paces up and down and then goes back in But and the telephone taps where you have Melinda lying to her mother-in-law two days after he's gone um, saying he, he's just not here at the moment but he'll talk to you as soon as he's back so it, it was all that material um, that I thought was really exciting and extraordinary, um, as uh, as you see them failing to snap the trap shut on on um, on the, the on this terrible spy and traitor. And the other extraordinary thing was the files. That was ten days after the defection before it got into the newspaper or to the public at all. When the head of MI6 was in Washington talking to Uh, Hoover of the FBI amongst other people and uh, he writes a letter back to a friend saying I was stopped in the corridor and they asked how we were getting on with uh, finding Homer and this was five days after he'd gone Um, I said we had six or seven people in the frame uh, but nothing definite yet so this notion that we were lying to our closest ally, um, the United States even as they had uncovered Homer for us um, was extraordinary. So it was, it was the, the background material to this, um, in many ways, very sorry tale of um, missed opportunities.
1: Wow. So whatever happened to him? So he ended up in Moscow? And- well,
0: interestingly, yes. He, he, so he went to Moscow in 1951. Uh, nobody in the West knew what had happened to him until 1956 when he reappeared. Uh, he gave a press conference just before Khrushchev came to Britain, and um, uh, that was deliberately timed so that this wouldn't be the main topic of conversation for Christopher when he did come. And um, he then, once again, well, now he no longer had to live a divided life, he became a whole man again, he, he got sober, he uh, took on a pseudonym, he called himself Mark Fraser, and uh, Melinda called herself Natasha Fraser, and he worked for a foreign policy institute. He, he used his great foreign policy brain to good effect as an sort of academic teaching institute. He wrote many papers under the name Mark Fraser. He um, wrote a book in 1970, which was when he became Donald McLean again, and he chose a, a different name before that so that it wouldn't deflect attention from the very good work he was doing he was slightly on the dissident wing he still worked for uh, the underdog of Russian society and um, the great sadness of his life after Melinda came back to him after the affair with Philby. Um, but then in the 1970s uh, Melinda and all his three children and Russian grandchildren all left Moscow and um, some went to the United States some came to England Um, so he was all alone but I think in some sense he uh, believed that this was the right thing that because of his actions his children shouldn't not live the life they would have lived in in America or England Um, but he did uh, die alone without his family in 1983 but his 30 years in Russia were were uh, of a man um, who was whole again, working at what he loved, not having these terrible binges, and it was a, um, I think, quite a salutary example of of how the divisions of his life had torn him apart. But uh, at the end, when he was back together, not having to hide, he was able to function.
2: Mm, yeah, one more, Roland. Yeah. After what you just said, um, you know, once once the pressure was off of him, he was able to reestablish his life and and live a relatively normal life. You know, mm-hmm. perhaps, yeah. perhaps I, you know, Kevin, perhaps I was too rough on him. Do you think that his drunkenness and his acting out and, and his behaviors were due to the immense pressure that was on this one man?
0: Yes, I do. I think I think it became unsustainable to him to work uh, for his country, you know, in the service of his country as a, as a diplomat, at the same time as working against his country as a spy. Uh, and I think it did become insupportable. Um, but I do think it's remarkable that he pulled himself back together because the other spies, Kim Philby and Guy Burgess, who defected to America, uh, to Moscow, sorry, um, drank themselves to death in effect, whereas he went the other way and and sobered up. Um, so I think he he was a man of high conscience, as his father always wanted him to be. But it was when that conscience was torn conscience was torn apart that that things went wrong for him. Mm.
1: Wow. So. Whatever, and how did it end up with his wife and, and kids? So they just all moved away and... Uh, uh. They all
0: moved away. She, Melinda went back in 1979. Um, and the kids went back at the same time. Um, so he had four years to live uh, after that. And they all went back. They never spoke. They have never spoken. Melinda died in 2010. The children are all still alive they've never spoken of their time in Moscow indeed they've never spoken to a, uh, to an author or journalist even um, a friend of mine who's a journalist who knew the, uh, knew the kids when he was a child pretty well they won't speak to him about their time in Moscow they, they, when they're in Moscow the family said we will never speak and McLean's only interview uh, Burgess was giving interviews all the time um, McCain's only interview was a few days before he died he gave an interview to a British newspaper where he which was a sort of a contradictory message I think to his kids um, saying he hoped he hadn't ruined their lives um, But so they did all come back to the to, uh, to the west yes having been brought up as perfect Russian children his letters from Moscow talk about them going pioneer camp and yeah. That sort of thing, but they they all went back to the the life they would have had.
1: So, what do you think the legacy is that he's left?
0: I think the legacy that he's left is, um, I think the the mistrust of the expert and the establishment. I think stems directly from his defection in 1951. The shock of that someone who were so highly trusted um, could betray the country, and I think it's it's not too much of a leap to see that level of mistrust of, of the political establishment running through to our times in the Brexit referendum, possibly in the, your last presidential election. That you know we don't like experts, and we don't like um, uh, uh, people steeped in. In politics to tell us what to do Um, and I think he also, I mean on a more um, practical level his legacy here are the vetting procedures Mm -hmm. that are undergone for civil servants um, and the that trust in people who have been to the right school and the right university has gone and I think we take a much more pragmatic uh, look at at, uh, all our
2: servants nowadays. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, go ahead. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no, no, go, go, go ahead. I was just agreeing. Sorry. Oh. Yes. Um, so I, I, I think he's,
0: indeed, the word establishment used as we've been using it was first coined in, in a newspaper in Britain to say what should we call the people who protected him throughout his career let us call it, the establishment. And I think it's, it's brought about that mistrust is his lasting legacy. His legacy in the second half of the 20th century until the end of communism, I think, speaks for itself, particularly in the shape of Europe.
1: So so what's, what, what do you ho- hope the readers get from, from the book?
0: I hope the readers will get a portrait of a fascinating man of intense contradictions uh, who has as his backdrop, and indeed he influences that backdrop, the, middle, the tumultuous middle years of the 20th century. Um, and I think you see a man shaped by his times, who in turn shapes his times, and is a pretty f- interesting man alongside all that.
1: Well, great. Now, what, what, uh, what's up next for you? Um, uh, more books? or I,
0: I don't. Uh, more books, absolutely, yes. Um, I'm, I'm working on another book, uh, this time a subject in the Second World War, um, it, again, which brings up questions of patriotism, ideology, how far you push one at the expense of the other, and, and so on like that. Because I got really interested in, in what makes, uh, what motivates people to operate around the subject of patriotism, survival, um, their beliefs, and so on. So I'm working on that now, yes.
2: Yeah,
1: yeah, there's a lot to work on in that area. (laughs) Yes. 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 Very interesting. Well, this has been an amazing interview. Uh, We've really enjoyed the conversation. I've
0: enjoyed myself talking to you immensely, yes.
2: Fascinating, fascinating. Again,
1: Again, our book is called A Spy Named Orphan, and it's The Enigma of Don, Donald McLean. And the guest has been the author, uh, Ronald Phillips. Thank you for taking the time.
2: Thank you for talking to me. Oh, Roland, thank you. To
0: find out more about our show, guests or to listen to past shows from our archive, please go to www.houseofmysteryradio.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me?
2: Well, good
1: night. This has been a
0: production of Something With Media.
2: I'll be back.